And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, we kind of talk about all kinds of outrageous things over here, and if you kind of are monitoring mainstream news, we're going to talk a bit tonight about some very important mainstream news. You may have noticed that the mainstream news is becoming as equally bizarre and extraordinary and astonishing as the kind of stuff that we used to talk about uh, only on this kind of show or when I would do art show, Coast to Coast or George or um, whatever. Um, Anyway, um, uh, Kintia is going to be joining us, but apparently PG&E says there's a power outage for the entire block in which she lives till around midnight. And she's one hour behind us, so that's like uh, three hours. So fortunately, she is going to be, I think, on her phone. We will find out very shortly. We have a very intriguing show tonight. I mean, this is kind of like from the show we did two weeks ago, in which I replayed uh, for reasons that I really didn't want to have to do it, but my infrastructure was also very bizarre uh, last weekend. Fortunately, this week it's been kind of boring, normal, super weather, not too hot, not too cool. Uh, daytime, it gets up right around 80. Nighttime, it's gone down to the mid-50s. We're at 6,500 feet. You can see stars that you could never see anywhere else. You get maybe, maybe, maybe in mid-ocean. Anyway, enough background. Um, what we're going to be dealing with tonight is kind of like the B.C., AD comparison that I talked about a couple of weeks ago because, you know, two, three weeks ago on a Wednesday afternoon, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration held their first public meeting relating to UAP, which, of course, is the new buzz uh, acronym for UFOs, except when the Pentagon has been talking about it and writing about it and holding briefings about it. The UAP is an attempt to kind of politically clean up a term which has fallen into incredible political disfavor over decades, i.e. UFOs, unidentified flying objects. So the new buzzword that has been kind of hatched by the Pentagon and the Congress and some of these new uh, pieces of legislation which have been signed into law in the last couple of years has changed UFO to UAP, standing for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And then last year, the Congress got involved again, and Senators uh, Rubio and Gillibrand, who in the Senate are kind of spearheading this uh, transformation, this rolling disclosure that we're now definitely in, and we're going to deal with some of the weirder political aspects of this tomorrow night when we do a show that takes us way, way back. But we'll get to that in a moment. So tonight, what we're going to do is kind of leap ahead in the story. And then tomorrow night, we're going to do a retro kind of show. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. So in the last couple, three weeks, the background, the political background, the the movements in Washington, the movements on Capitol Hill, the way the agencies are dealing with this remarkable 
phenomenon, which has been part of our um, lexicon and our experience now, at least since the 40s. You know, 47 was supposed to be the big year. Of course, if you're even up a little bit on the field, you know that UFOs or aerial weirdnesses, saucer-shaped things that uh, do not go bump in the night, that just kind of flit by without making sounds, they've been with us a lot longer than uh, the last 70 years. In fact, there's a very famous tapestry called the Bayou Tapestry, which celebrates the uh, invasion of England, the Norman invasion. And on it, there is a comet and a really great classic-looking UFO. So from those who have studied this field much more extensively than uh, I have, um, this phenomenology of something circular flitting around in the skies long before we'd created airships or aircraft, etc., it's been with us for a lot, if not most, of our history. In fact, I think there's even some hieroglyphs or cape painting somewhere which shows disc-like objects hovering in the sky. I, I, I won't bet the farm on that, but I'll bet someone can send me a link and, and uh, confirm that my memory is not totally added on the subject. Well, anyway, two years ago, no, I'm sorry, last year, the, the latest congressional legislation devoted to UAP formally changed the meaning of the acronym. It went from unidentified aerial phenomena to unidentified anomalous phenomena, which covers everything. I mean, that's what science looks at, anomalous phenomena. If you keep finding the same old, same old, same old, you know, you're not cutting new ground, you're not breaking the trail, you're not advancing the frontier, you're not pushing back the boundaries between knowledge and ignorance, as Rod Serling would have said. Um, but UAP now officially stands across all U.S. government agencies for unidentified aerial phenomena. And as we have worked, uh, kind of to say around here, um, that opens up a doorway big enough to fly the enterprise through. <clears throat> because if you find an ancient city lying on another planet like Mars, well, that's an unidentified, by mainstream science, anomalous phenomena. And then you approach it with criteria of scientific study, which, of course, going back to the Sagan rule, you start with geometry. Remember Sagan's famous quote, intelligent life on Earth first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of its constructions. So that's your rule of thumb. If you take a look at another planet and you find startling rectilinear geometry, repeating and repeating and repeating, even if it's broken and eroded and damaged and partially you know, buried in landfills, et cetera, et cetera, or earthquakes, rocks, mountains falling, talus slopes, whatever, if you can discern regular geometry, you got it. Because all we know of in terms of our background experience in looking at intelligent artifacts on Earth from space, from orbit, going back to Sagan's first experiments, looking at the Tyros imagery, the first crude weather 
satellites that were put up uh, back in the uh, 60s, which had uh, very crude Viticon cameras, not uh, solid state uh, CCDs like we have now. Even those cameras turned up evidence of geometry on Earth, uh, indicative of intelligent design, and Sagan even identified where they were. They were in a uh, midwinter Canadian forest, the same forests that are breezily burning down this year, and it was the crosshatch rectilinear pattern of the logging roads that the companies had created to drag out the timber because they can't, you know, they, they got to have a way to get them out and it's by truck. Some places very remote, they use helicopters, but that's very expensive. So what Sagan and one of his grad students did is to look through the Tyrus imagery, Tyros um, imagery, and found this kind of like a crosshatch in the middle of a bright uh, area with dark trees indicating the geometric regularity of the logging roads. He did not find, by the way, the Great Wall of China. He did not find on the limited resolution Tyros imagery, Los Angeles or New York or London or Paris, whatever. But because the scale of the logging roads was much bigger, he was able to pick those out, publish them as part of um, this paper on how you would use spacecraft and satellites to look for intelligence on other planets, starting with hint hint mars one of his favorite places and so we were all as as the saying goes off to the races well you carry that motif that model that idea all the way through now to a couple of wednesdays ago when one of the nasa scientists on this special ua panel which was convened to recommend future research actions to the administrator of NASA uh, this fall. And they had 16 members, and one of them is a very well-known NASA scientist. He's been part of many, many missions to the outer planets and the inner planets and um, has been an advisor uh, way back to the Apollo program, I believe. Uh, And it turns out that he made the perfect teaser statement at this UAP NASA panel a couple weeks ago. He sat there and he said very, very calmly, and I'll read it directly from uh, from our uh, banner for tomorrow night, which of course, uh, I gotta do a couple clicky things here. Come on, computer, don't let me down. Okay, we're, there we are. Finding extraterrestrial artifacts in our own solar system is at least now scientifically plausible. And of course, that has changed everything. Because the conversation we're going to have tonight about art discovered by one of my guests, Jonathan Womack, not only on Earth, ancient earthen art, geoglyphs, massive carvings and reshaping of the landscape by some kind of intelligent beings or artists or dimensional personas, or extraterrestrials, or whatever they turn out to be, and it's not an exclusive list. You could have more than one cause. Remember, two things can be true simultaneously. That now has been found by Jonathan's very interesting eye and perceptivity. 
on other places in the solar system, starting with the moon. So this is going to be our conversation tonight. And we can have it because NASA, a couple, three weeks ago, legitimized the whole field with a single statement by Dr. David Grinspoon, the idea of ET artifacts, meaning intelligently designed architecture, ruins, machines, artwork, all of it elsewhere than Earth is now per NASA recommendation to the administrator, which will be formalized in about uh, eight weeks this fall. That recommendation has now made the study of extraterrestrial intelligent beings leaving artifacts and architecture everywhere they go a perfectly, totally centrist, mainstream, scientific discussion, truly transmogrified from, you know, the late night last uh, uh, story in the uh, 11 o'clock news, the, the one with the giggles and the punchline. We have graduated to another, well, practically another dimension, certainly politically. So, um, let me introduce, first of all, tell you who uh, is going to be on the show tonight. We're going to have Jonathan Womack, who is um, an artist and a publisher and also has done extensive work in what we call the psi sciences. These are um, hyperdimensional inquiries, including out-of-body experiences, um, telepathy, telekinesis, uh, clairvoyance, all, all that whole cadre of not accepted yet in mainstream science studies. That's kind of what Jonathan has done for literally decades since he was, he was a child. And part of it has to do with his own personal outer body experiences. But grafted onto that is a left brain metonymic scientific approach to how do we know that what we're seeing, what he is seeing is not just projection of his own very rich um, imagination. Oh, have I, have I told you that he also writes novels? And he's got you know, probably a half a dozen now uh, to his credit. And we're going to, you know, do some name dropping. We're going to drop a couple of the titles so you can go and find them and read them. Um, some of them are quite good. I have not read them all, so I can't say they're all quite good. But uh, the ones I did find and he sent me, yes, they're definitely uh, at the level of where you keep wanting to turn the page. Uh, the other uh, guest we have tonight is Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician. I, I keep saying that what you probably need to do is to go and click on, on her bio, which is not actually connected yet. So that, that's a little thingy that we have to fix. Um, the, the main reason why Georgia and I hit it off is because she approaches this from the sacred side of the tracks. She worked for over a decade with uh, Manley Hall there in Los Angeles, who, be, who created a center, which is like in the 40s and 50s and 60s, was kind of like the uh, metaphysical center of research in the United States. Uh, she's done a whole bunch of other things. And when we get her uh, uh, bio linked up there, uh, you'll be able to look at that. And then the last but not least person tonight that's going to join us is our own Kinthea, who with me created this whole field of extraterrestrial artifacts 
investigation when I um, gave her two photographs uh, taken by the the uh, Viking spacecraft from orbit of Mars of a region called Sidonia, and I gave her two uh, enlargements of this uh, feature lying there, looking straight up, you know, measuring about a mile, mile and a half, you know, from from crown to chin of a extraordinarily human-looking face lying there in the Martian desert in the region called Sidonia, looking straight up at the stars at space. And Kintia, much to her chagrin, accepted the photos and thereby changed her entire life. Well, we're going to get into all of that tomorrow night with uh, John Brandenburg and Mark Carlotto. Um, It's kind of like putting the band back together because we're going to take everybody back in the Wayback Machine tomorrow night to where the investigation of actual physical 3D artifacts on worlds other than the Earth really began, which was back in 1983 with the first independent Mars investigation at SRI. So that's tomorrow night. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to leap ahead because based on the extraordinary amount of evidence that I have acquired and researched and many of the other members of the Enterprise Mission imaging team, people like uh, Tim Saunders and Keith Morgan and, uh, of course, Kentia and uh, Robert Morningstar and uh, am I forgetting people? Yeah, of course I'm forgetting people, uh, but some of them will be with us tomorrow night. We have now amassed a huge and independent set of overlapping data showing unequivocally that there are ruins by someone or maybe more than someone that NASA has imaged and other national space missions have imaged the solar system. And so we're really in AD because all we've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for has been for officialdom to kind of recognize, well, hey guys, this is, this is a real science. And that has now occurred. It's all over really, but the shouting and the, the, you know, pen on the paper and the official announcement of the NASA offices, one of which we'll be looking at with all of the modern tools at, in their possession. And I'll kind of define that as we go through the morning. Um, at an extraordinary database, which is NASA's, which has been acquired over decades of a vast variety of solar system bodies and objects and planets and moons on which from our completely independent studies and many others all over the world. I mean, we basically began a cottage industry. It's obvious now. All of that now must be reassessed in light of Grinspoon's very famous phrase that looking for ET artifacts is now scientifically plausible. Katie, bar the door. Because, boy, are they going to come up the curve rapidly with extraordinary insights into, oh, my, those guys were right. Now, of course, I don't know whether they're going to admit that we were right. There is some feeling on the part of some researchers, particularly Carlotto, that NASA is going to try to own everything and claim that they discovered all this stuff. And we'll have that discussion tomorrow night. But tonight I want to introduce this as a backdrop of what's going on in the real political world 
of Washington where in this nation things, uh, big things get decided because this conversation is now taking place in a political atmosphere where looking for ET ruins and I think even more interesting and important, looking for ET artwork, and that's a long, interesting discussion, is coming to the fore. It's legitimate. It's been legitimized. And so what John was involved in just a couple of weeks ago has now been transformed in terms of background to where it's one of the things that we can legitimately pursue as these expanding spheres of inquiry spread out, according to Grinspoon, all across the solar system. So without further ado, let me go to a couple of my items and I will uh, bring on my, my guests. Uh, item number one. Now, this is something which, of course, whether you're a, a Trump fan or you're not a Trump fan or you're in the middle, this is just history. This is obviously requires some kind of you know, mention and it requires specific mention because of something that I have found in the actual indictment. <clears throat> President Trump um, on Tuesday, the 13th of June, was formally indicted on federal charges for taking and keeping box after box after box, hundreds and hundreds of documents, if not thousands and thousands of documents which are not technically classified, but which, of course, under the Presidential Records Act, uh, belong in the National Archive for the American people and not in some room or bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Everybody knows this, this wildly polarized conversation. What you don't know, which is what makes it part of tonight's conversation, and we'll get to the implications of this probably toward the middle of the show, is that as part of our studies of ET artifacts on Mars primarily, but also on the moon, we were led to what I call a parallel and extraordinarily suppressed physics, which is this hyper-dimensional physics model. And one of the key significators of the hyper-dimensional model is the concept of a tetrahedron, the first three-dimensional object that you can create in 3D when you go from a point to a line to a three-dimensional object. The first three-dimensional object that the, you can create is a tetrahedron, which is composed of four vertices. The angles are 60 degrees, I'm sorry, 120 degrees, and there are four faces and four points or vertices. And when you put that into a spinning sphere, if the sphere represents a planet, the tetrahedral model predicts that something interesting should occur above and below the equator of that sphere at an angle of 19.5 degrees from the equator, either north or south. So we, we kind of use in a shorthand where this connection to ET ruins, which has in the middle of it this recurring redundant message of the physics and it shows us by the numbers, by the angles, and by the replication endlessly of tetrahedrons. The key number to remember out of all that is 19.5. The reason that I believe this whole Trump extravaganza vis-a-vis his indictment and his upcoming trial 
and the nation and the world being riveted. And you know it's going to obviously wind up, it has to wind up on live television. You can't possibly do this behind a barrier where you don't even get to hear what goes on. Um, That is going to present us with some extraordinary, interesting options, which may, in fact, overlap, as you will hear tonight, with our own studies, i.e. the ruins and the physics. Because as you may remember, many years ago, we created as part of our uh, enterprise mission imaging team, a video called the uh, presidential briefing. And through a backdoor channel, someone who had known the president for like 40 years, I was able to get the presidential briefing um, video directly into President Trump's hands in the White House. And a couple weeks after that, curious things began to happen. Initially, when NASA had come out uh, talking about the Artemis mission and its transmogrification from the previous Bush years um, into efforts to return human beings, Americans, to the moon, the new program, which uh, had been uh, created by um, the uh, uh, Obama administration, was called Artemis. And it had no money, and its projected time frame was the first landings could not occur before 2028. Two weeks after President Trump got our presidential briefing, without acknowledgement, without email, without any kind of word, the president himself, President Trump, demanded that the timetable uh, for NASA to get back to the surface of the moon with human beings be moved up to 20. 24 without any reason except I want to do it at the beginning of my second term. Now, in terms of circumstantial evidence, I really believe that it was based in part on what he saw in our video and what he then saw in NASA's own archives that moved the president, President Trump, remember, to move up the landing so that it would occur sometime at the end of his first term, or God willing, the creek don't rise, in the first year of his second term. This, of course, was all done well before 2020. So where are we tonight? We have a president indicted for basically taking huge truckloads of super top secret documentation, including maybe files covering what NASA has found in the way of intelligent artifacts on the moon, on Mars, on other places, and he personally took them with him. We now find out for the four years of his administration, most of that time he would take certain boxes with these super top secret documents with him on Air Force One or to Trump Tower or to Bedminster, which is his golf course there in, in northern New Jersey. And he also said very bluntly to his lawyer, who has now been forced by the legal system to turn state's evidence and reveal conversations that normally lawyers are not supposed to be able to reveal, a judge ruled that there was enough evidence to basically put his, one of his attorneys under oath as a witness before the grand jury, and this um, uh, lawyer 
his name is uh, Corcoran, he transcribed notes which reveal that at one point the president, President Trump, looked at him and says, those are my boxes. I don't want anyone looking through my boxes. I don't want you looking through my boxes. Now that we know the contents of the boxes, which are basically in the indictment, I have found something absolutely astonishing and confirming regarding our model that maybe, just maybe, the president took more than the nation's top nuclear secrets. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, Jonathan Womack, Georgia Lambert, and Kinthea discuss artwork on two worlds, on Earth and on the moon. And does Donald Trump actually know all about this? Because it's in the files? We shall return. Episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, June 17th of 2023. Let me tell you one real factual reason why I'm strongly suspecting that everything we're going to hear over the next year, year and a half about the Trump indictment and the arraignment and the trial and all of this incredible, unprecedented soap opera is standing in front of some higher level secret or maybe to be revealed connection to what's out there what if trump did not decide to make all this public but decide to just basically take it with him 
and sit on it until the appropriate time. And everyone can judge for themselves what appropriate means in this uh, uh, context. I will tell you some very specific facts. In the initial rumors on last Thursday night on, I think it was the 9th of June, that there was going to be a formal indictment, the first person who promulgated this rumor on Truth Social was none other than Donald J. Trump, the ex-president. And he posted his first announcement of his pending indictment, wait for it, at 19.5, 7.30 Eastern Time in Washington, which in military time is 19.5, 19 and a half hours. And in the initial rumors of the uh, uh, charges in the indictment, ultimately there turned out to be 37 or 38, it depends on how you count. But in the original, what he said was he had been or was going to be charged with seven crimes under the Espionage Act. Seven crimes. Now, why is that interesting? Because seven is, of course, the number of spins of a tetrahedron in three dimensions. So my question for everyone who thinks that I'm just beating this, you know, poor dead political horse uh, one more time what does Trump know about hyperdimensional physics and extraterrestrial ruins and what NASA and the Pentagon and the secret space program and everything we have looked at from the beginning of this show? What does he know? And when did he know it? And did we basically turn him on to something having to do with a much, much larger and most incredibly important for humanity, extraterrestrial truth. So with that, let me bring on Jonathan Womack and Georgia Lambert, and Kinthea's there waiting in the wings. Georgia, let me go to you first. I recently found a, uh, an old movie, actually it's a new movie, and I, I downlinked it you know, so I can watch it when I have time to watch movies, which I think won an award, won an Academy Award last year called everything happening at once or everything everywhere at once or something like that. I have gotten this strong feeling that because of the relationship of the cyclic physics that we've talked about, the processional cycle, the Vedas um, coming basically to a cyclic uh, climax within year or two years or three years by way of, you know, some calendrical studies that, when we look at any part of this cultural or political or scientific landscape, what we're seeing is tumult and revolution and exposure of things that have been kept secret for decades, if not hundreds of years, if not thousands, or maybe even tens of thousands of years. And the merry-go-round is rotating, of course, coming around. And if we can grab the brass ring. We can climb on this merry-go-round and it's going to take us boldly where no one for maybe 26,000 years has been able to go before. Am I on to something or should I quietly go back and take up knitting? (laughs) Um, Only if you knit little sweaters for dogs. Um, Or even teeny tinier sweaters. Tiny little mice sweaters. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. 
anyway, um, no, you're right on. Uh, esoterically, we are at a time when there are major cycles and minor cycles all dovetailing into one another. Uh, on major scales, we're obviously moving from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. Uh, in some circles, this is a shift from what is called the age of the sixth ray, which is the energy of aspiration and reaching upward and inward for divinity, to the age of the seventh ray, where that upward aspiration now loops back around and that spirituality that has been accessed is brought to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's the big one of the big cycles. Within that, we have echoes of old Atlantean stuff come round again at a higher turn of the spiral. Uh, we've got minor cycles of humanity as a species moving from emotional polarization to the beginnings of true mental polarization. We've got the birth of a new kingdom, the kingdom of conscious souls emerging within humanity. And all of these different cycles at this particular time are dovetailing into one another, which means that this is a very important time to be alive. So you have two choices. One is you go out and meet the day and the future, or you can hide under your bed with a pillow over your ears and go, la, 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 pretend nothing's going on. Well, it's sort of like birthing a baby. The baby's going to come whether the mother's lying in a field or, or in a hospital. Right. Um, it, it depends on how comfortable we want to be and what kind of collateral damage occurs. We are told esoterically that with the changing of this age, we don't have to go through the rising and sinking of continents or great shifts of landmass that has been the case in the distant past, that we can make this more of a conscious transition to a new incarnational time and not forget who we are or forget all our history. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be completely smooth, as we can all see on the world wait, wait, stage. Wait, 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 wait. If, if we're in the Kali Yuga, which is the Vedic term for the low part of the cycle where everybody forgets everything and they're barely still human, if we go up from there, the question is, do we ascend smoothly back up the, the Vedic, you know, tree of, of other ages or do we jump like in a frequency within within a, a brief period of time days hours months years whatever between the the nadir the low point where we are now the kali yuga do we do we leap to the highest one which is the highest frequency so suddenly all these things we think of as miracles which really are just mind over hyperdimensional matter suddenly is available if not to everyone, at least to those who are genetically connected enough still to where they can tap into, George Lucas, thank you, the force. Well, that's part of this transition. Uh, we, we know that growth isn't a smooth curve. It, it's, it's jumps and spurts and plateaus. Um, we may not be able to jump to the highest rung here, but we can you make a huge leap forward. Uh, one of the uh, other cycles in all of this business is moving from looking at reality as only solids, liquids, and gases to the next level up, which is 
the realm of the force or the matrix or the etheric circulation of the planet itself, the, or the chronic or vitality. The, or, the, or, or the torsion field. Exactly. I mean, there's many, many different ways of talking about it. Or the ether, it. the ether, I mean. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, that's part of the resistance. Remember, matter doesn't like to change, and it only fusses when it's threatened. And so as we look on the world stage, we're seeing in every corner of human and planetary existence old crystallized forces that want to stay asleep and don't want to make this leap. But it's inevitable. The question is, how comfortable are we going to make this transition? Well, if we kind of expand our, our outlook and we you know, look at artifact, solid stuff, you know, can kick the tires metaphorically, that's where Jonathan comes in. Because in this new paradigm era, as we're looking outward, um, Jonathan's finding some pretty amazing stuff. So before we get to the off-world connection, Jonathan, for all the new people that I wangled to come over here tonight from George's show and Clyde's show, we have a lot of new listeners. Why don't you give us a pricey, including connections with radio with pictures, to the work you've been doing in Utah, you and Keith, because it's that place we're going to leap off from, you know, in a little while and take our first look at potential comparative artwork on two worlds on a scale which is mind-boggling to most people. Sure, Richard. Uh, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, this odyssey began when I was very young and noticed some strange things in the American Southwest. And and like most people that go to Arches Park and the other parks and they see things that... Now, Ar <clears throat> Arches Park is in Utah, right? It's a national park. Correct. And a lot of people go there and, and I know a lot of them see things and they go, wow, that looks like something. And, but it just kind of ends there. And that was my attitude too. I didn't want to <clears throat> do the deep dive into this because I knew it would be life changing and it was just a very momentous thing to take on. And yet I could not let a day go by with these gods being forsaken by us humans when they left all this stuff for us to find and decode and use the, the gift of the arches is something uh, so tremendous and wonderful and joyous we I, I just couldn't let it go you know I just couldn't go back to bed and go eh never mind <laughs> okay so when you say gods and I didn't I didn't change your uh, your uh, banner for tonight I let you do it and you didn't put quotes around the gods. And when I read this to somebody uh, a couple of days ago, they, they kind of freaked out. They said, these guys are not gods. What Didn't everybody watch Stargate, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you mean, Jonathan, when you say gods? Well, for example, when I asked the question, how many solar systems, because I talked about months ago when um, you know, I asked the question and then I, I go out of body and they took me on a little space tour and showed me that wait, wait, these are... Wait, wait. They? Who's they? And there are three uh, beings, three spirits. Um, I don't... There are some of these people that are sculpting, doing all this sculpting. And, and I, I said, how many star systems 
in the Milky Way are like this that are sculpted? And the answer was all of them. And it's nebulas as well. And it's even the disk of the Milky Way when you look up in the sky at night. Uh, Richard, I was in my brother's cabin at 12,200 feet. And when you look up at the night sky, it's amazing because you can see the disk of the galaxy and all that. And now here I am. They're showing me that that's all the same kind of 3D illusory art that they create. So it's everywhere. So there, that's pretty godlike. They're so far well, above us. <laughs> remember, Arthur, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable magic. A hyperdimensional technology to a 3D person would look like godlike powers, but it's it's just evolution in a larger frame. At least that's what I. Uh, Georgia, please help me out here. Well. It, it's really interesting when, when in art school you learn to do portraits, for instance. The first thing you have to learn is not to paint yourself. Because one of the things about art is whatever art the artist produces has qualities of the creator. Oh. And, and so it's whether that is geometry or color or design or whatever it happens to be, uh, it's very hard not to put yourself in the faces that you're drawing. So that, that's, that you have to unlearn. Remember the work of Schwab. So wait, 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 wait when, when you're at a blank canvas and you're in one of these classes where a whole bunch of people are standing around in front of blank canvases and, the, the the teacher tells you, oh, you draw this or draw that, or basically you give you themes. Do people tend to, if they try to do human faces, do they kind of paint their own face from subliminal memory, having looked in the mirror for decades? Yes. yes wow. They do. And, and not only that, I mean, forget mirrors. Remember the work of Schwaller de Lubitsch, where he plan of Egyptian temples and he superimposed it with the art, the bas-reliefs of the Egyptian pharaohs and then bas-reliefed it again with actual anatomy. All temples are metaphors for the human body, the human frame. So it's very interesting when we're starting to think about art from other places it may be their signature. In other words, for instance, here, we've got the golden section that defines construction here. That may be true in other places, but it may not be. And mm. so, you know, for instance, uh, remember the, the, the bar in Star Wars where you walked in and there were all these Oh, yeah, the, the infamous bar scene, yes. Ultimately with this understanding, you would be able to look at a critter and know exactly what system they're from oh. because their body mirrors the geometry oh. of the system they're from. Well, really the physics of the system they're from. Yeah, exactly. How interesting. Okay, John, so are you holding to the idea that these guys whose artwork you've been looking at are real gods, meaning they've somehow had a hand in our creation or are using the term more metaphorically like uh, as Arthur Clarke? No, I believe they had a hand in the creation of the solar system and 
all of the beings that are in this solar system. Okay. You know we're going to find out someday. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. That's the amazing thing. We're going to find out. I, I, I cannot communicate more strongly this incredible feeling after 40 or 50 years that I've been at this, able to sit here tonight and know that under the agency that I have worked for uh, and part of a, a you know government for more than any other agency, NASA, they officially are going to be opening the door to look at all of this because it's like my grandmother when she used to do quilts. If you do a quilt wrongly, if you knit one, purl one wrongly, and you've got this loose thread and you pull it, which I did one day, oh, that was not a good idea. The whole damn thing will fall apart. There's no part of this that's not going to be connected all the way from kick the tires machines on other worlds, starting with the moon, to this ineffable artwork, which frankly, I have some evidence that you don't even need to be in a body to do artwork in 3D. And that's a, that's a real discovery for me over the last several years. Richard, you know, when you read the quote about um, uh, the, the guy from NASA yeah, Dr. saying, Grinspoon. yeah, that it was now okay to look for alien artifacts throughout the solar system. Mm. What struck me is it also means here on Earth. Oh, of course. And that's why I wanted John on tonight. So let me stop. I'll stop interrupting. Thank you, John. So you're wandering around the Southwest. You see all this incredible stuff that 99.99% of the tourists go, boy, look at the amazing things erosion can do. <laughs> and through your eyes and through Keith Morgan's eyes, you look at it and you say, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> because it's... Uh, it's like the, the author of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, he said that, uh, what does he call it, someone else's problem. And when you see something that's so far out of your frame of reference that it seems impossible, the mind ignores it. Yeah, he says it can't be. It can't be. Yeah, this can't be. And indeed, it is. It's so astronomically vast. Well, one of the cliches around here, you know, is if you can't imagine it, you can't see it. And for 99.99999% of the people that went to Arches Park, including my grandparents, and shot Kodachrome slides and stereo pictures, you know, Viewmaster, they could no more have imagined us having this conversation tonight that they can imagine that their, you know, grandson was a... Anyway, please continue. Ah, uh, yes. I, I Another thought I had was, you know, down the road some years from now when this all comes out and these people's faces, see, I've come to know these folks that are depicted in this artwork and these massive geoglyphs and all the way down to ground level. Um, they're going to look back on today and they're they're going to say, how is it that humans took so long to see this stuff. And part of it is because we have been so conditioned by mainstream archaeologists and say maybe NASA or just people tell us this is erosion and, and people accept that. And then when you find out that that's a lie, it's going to be very hard to convince people otherwise. But in time, 
this will become known and uh, these people faces their face are going to be as familiar to everyone as they are to me so wherever I look now I just go oh my god I, you mentioned Jupiter the other night we were talking on the phone so I of course I had to go look at it <laughs> Yeah, amazing art with these rotating bands of, of gas. And so when you talk about Jupiter, the Jovian system, you don't mean artwork on the moons. You mean artwork in the clouds of Jupiter. That's correct. See, if you'd said that even like a year ago, I would have raised an eyebrow in very Spockian fashion. I would have gently potted you down, and we would have segued <laughs> to anything. But I have, I have a physics framework where I frankly think that I can see your Jovian artwork and raise you an ancient supernova remnant. Mm. In other words, I've been finding, Georgia, please help here. I've been finding this extraordinary uh, gargantuan, cyclopean, you know, gods between the stars kind of artwork in places that would be totally beyond any conventional Newtonian 3D dynamics and physics. But once you allow the idea that consciousness in a higher dimension interacting with material stuff in this dimension can do things on a scale that looks like God's and has some of the aspects of the forcing function that would be needed to create these creations, it opens up such doorways. I guarantee you, most of the people on planet Earth tonight, they're not ready for this yet. That's our job. Well, one of the things that, that strikes me in this conversation at this point is that the division between architecture geometry and art those divisions don't exist it's all the same thing you know with the discovery of fractals if you and your listeners remember the mandelbrot set the mandelbrot set in fractals looks like a sitting buddha oh that's right it does Absolutely. And, and when it's broken down, it still has that Buddha in the lotus posture shape. And so the idea of separating architecture and art is a fallacy. It, it all goes together. There is no geometry and architecture without art. But if you're going to try to act, you know, analyze it from the, from the back end, not knowing who the creator was, who the artist was, it's so much easier to identify the rectilinear stuff than it is the art. Because the artwork can be anything, and, and, the, and, the, and the accusation of pareidolia, which I always you know, mispronounce, the idea that you're projecting, you're seeing things, you know, rabbits and clouds, that kind of thing, it becomes almost impossible to analytically separate the two ends of the spectrum because they ultimately grade together and without being connected to where you know at a higher dimensional level, this is art, this is entropy, it, it, to the outsiders, the people who are not into this way of thinking, that's going to be probably one of the biggest hurdles that we have to cross. Fortunately, I may have an answer later in the show for where NASA can go 
to kind of bring resolution. But we'll get to that well, in a minute. Sorry, Re- I, I just... remember, remember that the Freemasons call God the great architect, the grand architect of the universe. Oh, yeah. John? Yeah, there's also the technology aspect where these structures on the moon and all over the Earth and Mars and so forth, there's this wondrous technology that's part of it, and it's far beyond <clears throat> anything we have. So I'm little by little decoding the arches and the technology behind it. And um, finding the moon connection was a big step because that seems to be a kind of actuator, a cyclic actuator of the arches. Okay, before we get to the moon, you know, we're down basically at the bottom of the hour. No, we're at the top of the hour. I've got to look at the right clock here. Um, I'm going to give you an uninterrupted time on the other side of this break, but do us a tease. How did you get from looking at Archer's Park to having that, that epiphany where it, you said to yourself one day, wait a minute, this isn't erosion. Well, I knew it was erosion when I, I saw Keith's vacation photos, but um, when I knew the moon was involved was when I was uh, gazing through the delicate arch because it frames a wait, number wait, wait. Of... Maybe I didn't make myself clear. Your model is that somebody physically did the stuff in Archer's Park, right? Oh, yes. Or a set of somebody's. Yes. Now, that's not erosion. It has, no. it has been eroded after it was turned into art, but the, but the substrate, the materials are the sandstones and the, the other rocks that are occurring there in Archer's Park, Right. Correct. Okay. When you say consciousness does it with a sophisticated technology, at some point that technology, because of the hyperdimensional nature, grades directly into the physics and mental control with no, as a forbidden planet, you would say, instrumentality required, right? Yeah, the blueprint is is created in higher dimensions and then they manifest it into time space okay hold it there my guest this morning is uh, john womack and georgia lambert and Cynthia will join us she's working on a time crunch project so she will probably join us later in the show i want her art input as well because if you've seen any of her art wow you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard z hoagland I'm talking to you from the AD paradigm that there could be artifacts created by intelligence, not only in terms of physics and technology, but by the mind alone. And when we get to that evidence, you better bet to fasten your seatbelts. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight for this Saturday evening here in the land of enchantment. Gorgeous weather we've been having. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, as Goldilocks uh, used to say. So, John, start again with, with Archer's Park. And what, 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 when you saw those effigies, when you saw the erosion of things that really, in the right lighting, look like statues, except very, very, very old, and on a scale that uh, most people, you know, do not do not uh, work in. What was that crystallization moment where you said, wait a minute, this is not natural erosion. Somebody did this. Exactly. It was a diametric moment because there was such, you know, joy and wonder and discovery. And at the same time, it was a sinking feeling and, Thinking of yes, it was the the hardest thing. <clears throat> I actually have a very tough time when I sit down to do this research. It's it's very hard on me because of this you know this dichotomy where it's so wondrous, but it's there's such tragedy because it goes unnoticed by humans and and it's left here for us. So it's this incredible tragedy, and I. I Sometimes I just have to get up and walk away, and and I'm reminded by my spirit guide, no, you got to keep going. Just separate yourself from that. Do not dwell on the tragedy. Uh, just think about the the positive side. Hmm. I wonder if there could be an even deeper connection. Yes, I, I feel like I might might have had something to do with the the architects because I've come to know. What these people um, who are featured in this artwork, what their jobs are, and the the people that made the arches are very highly regarded, as, as you might imagine. And you know, and I see their faces all over, and I, I go, "Geez, am I?" And and I'm decoding this, uh, the technology of the arches. So I, I have to wonder: Do I have some connection to that? Am I a, uh, a fractal spirit of, of one of these <laughs> folks? You know, mm-hmm. so. what would you mean fractal? <clears throat> Why couldn't it be simple reincarnation? Yeah, reincarnation where, 
you have enough energy to run more than one body or many bodies on many planets simultaneously, all learning and evolving. Uh, yeah, those are fractal spirits or aspect is another. Uh, so I might be an aspect or there are many thousands. Like if you go on YouTube, you know, there are many thousands of people that they talk about their, you know, their Anunnaki or they know this Anunnaki, this or that. And um, I think a lot of these people could also be fractal souls of, of these uh, the architects and you know they remember something they're kind of like they they know something's going on but they don't quite know what it is so um, I, I could be in a situation like that and i'm remembering now at the rate it's coming is so fast and I, I get a little frustrated because the dissemination takes so long i wish i could just do a mind meld with the people of earth <laughs> and it would sure speed things up you know? well remember it, we are in this political universe now where these kinds of inquiries are suddenly by fiat legitimate and an awful lot of people you know when this gets promulgated which will probably not happen for a couple of months you know until the nasa office of unidentified um anomalous phenomenon is established and the office looking for artifacts of ets across the solar system is established under that and that's going to get a lot of play in the mainstream press so an awful People have basically looked at both of us and said, you guys are really, you know, I want what you're smoking, uh, <laughs> are, 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 are going to have to take a second look because suddenly the frame, the political backdrop is, well, these guys may be kind of far out, but they're doing something that's plausibly scientific. It's all about language. You know, it's all about giving ourselves permission to boldly go where someone has gone before. Yeah, I think I'll be able to tie these knots uh, together so that other people besides me will be able to, or it sounds like you too, Richard, you're starting to see this too. Um, other people will see well, this. Well, I've got a kind of a direct line to some really bizarre evidence. Remember, I love evidence, and Robin, I'm going to be very forthright, has sent me some really amazing evidence. And, you know, I'm of the uh, school, make no wine before it's time. When is it time to talk about this? When is it time to lay out the evidence for other people? Well, if you lay it out when politically no one thinks you're doing anything that can be verified, that is kind of an inhibitor. Now that we're crossing this Rubicon, now that these studies at some level are going to be really legitimized, not the least of which is by, and I'll give you a hint, the application of AI, which I think is going to become the 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 doorway of salvation for the space agency in this whole realm i think an awful lot of things that you and i and georgia and Cynthia have been talking about quietly that we kind of think are are verifiable are going to be open to a much much wider audience who will be able to think things they never thought before and people won't say oh you're crazy because they will have nasa standing behind them validating that no, it's just unusual, anomalous phenomena. In other words, science. I hope you're right, Richard. I really you want do. to make a bet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have cleaned up in various ways on these bets. Remember the the bet I had with George. By the way, he still owes me a, a night doing coast. I just remember that. Anyway, so I, I you know please don't let me keep stepping on you. 
So when did you transform from it's really amazing erosion to somebody did this? That was August of 2021 when I was ah. listening to uh, one of your shows where Keith was showing his vacation photos and uh, making remarks about this stuff isn't natural. And of course, when I saw them, I think I said to you, Keith saw a tree. I saw this vast forest covering the solar system uh, because once you see it, it's hard to unsee. And so I, I started working, uh, doing this research. I was very busy with productions uh, with Russell Targ and Maria Wheatley at the time. And uh, so it was kind of a part-time thing, but very, you know, it's like the gods are over my shoulder watching me and, they're going, okay, keep keep at it. Don't, you know. So, uh, Do we have that, items in radio with pictures so people can see some of the stuff in Utah? Um, do I have any Utah photos? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can go to my items. I guess that's a good place to start. Uh, now, last October, October 2022, you had me on to do a, a first part. It's like Arches Park Part 1. It was called uh, Queen Hare of Arches Park. And three days after that, it just so happens, there was a solar eclipse. And the path of that solar eclipse, where the moon creates the shadow that travels across the face of the Earth, it just happened to come down to the Pacific Northwest and it winds down through Utah and New Mexico. I, I think it might've gone right over your, over your house, Richard. And I, I thought that was interesting. And this, now I've come to learn here we are almost two years later that there's some activation going on with the moon. The, the diamond ring effect of the moon is actually um, showing us the arch uh, there. This is our gift to you. And the moon is activating the, the arches and these different solar eclipses. So I haven't quite decoded it all yet, but I can see what's going on to, to agree. And I, I, I've got a taste of it. So I'm really, I'm like Sherlock Holmes, just, you know, at, towards the last chapter. <laughs> oh, the game is a foot, Watson. We're almost there. So uh, if you want to go to my items, number one, this is an important, um, well, let me tell folks how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's the website and click on tonight's banner that takes you to the show page. And if you scroll down a bit, you'll see um, John's items and you click on that. So yeah, right under that banner on, it's actually the guest page. The show page is the main page. The guest page is the individual, you know, evening uh, uh, like like guest like page. tonight, so it's the guest page. So guest page. So right yeah. under that, on the guest page, there is a link, fast links to items. Click on Jonathan, that will take you to his, his section of radio with pictures. Yes, this this poster is uh, very key and analogous because I had bought this framed poster some 25 years ago when it came out, and it's a 3D poster, and I had given up seeing any kind of 3D image in it. I I thought maybe it's some kind of hooey, it's some fake psyops thing. I don't know what's going on with this poster, but I don't see anything. And then well, well, what, 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 what made you imagine you were going to? 
because it's sold as a 3D poster. And oh, okay. Okay. See something in, um, you know that that area in front of the Enterprise. It just looks like a, sort of a geometric mishmash, and. And then one day I looked at it and I was just kind of staring at it. You know, you got to let your eye really linger on it. And, um, and then I saw it and it was like, Oh my God, I see it. <laughs> so w- what was happening? That's, that's um, going to basically be on your tombstone. <laughs> oh my God. Jonathan Womack, th- third iteration. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. This magic eye poster. So, as I'm researching Arches Park and I'm using every psychic tool I have at my disposal and I'm seeing these things from a, a higher plane, a higher dimension, and then I come back to time space and, I, and then I try to match that and, and say, what am I seeing and can I prove this or can I detect this with my human eyes? Because like, people that come from other parts of the galaxy to see this art, they see it differently. They can see it in infrared or all these kind of different ways that we don't, we're not so privy to, but so I'm trying to think, how can I get other people to see? And it's creating these 3d shadowy light shadow illusions. It's like a holographic illusion. It's an illusion. It looks real, but, it's not. It's a well, trick hang on a second. <clears throat> Georgia, isn't all art ultimately an illusion, a kind of a focused illusion where the artist kind of points our attention to certain things he or she wants to amplify and therefore directs our consciousness? So at some level, it, 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 it's all manipulation of our, our consciousness. Well, yeah. And uh, what is being highlighted differs vastly for instance in very realistic art you've you've got you know the realistic depiction of goods and things that we're familiar with but then you know you have those artists that explore other ideas for instance uh at the end of the 1800s into the early 1900s when uh in literature the first sci-fi books were being written, you know, uh, and time travel books, uh, artists got the idea of instead of depicting things realistically, gosh, what would a person look like if you could look at them from different perspectives all at the same time, a la Picasso? Uh, what, what if uh, you wanted to depict a movement? Uh, you've got uh, new descending a staircase, which is like overlays of, of motion picture stills that produce motion when they're linked together. So it depends on what the artist is trying to get you to look at in consciousness. Hmm. Okay, John, back in Utah. Back in Utah, um, my item 2A and 2B are some interesting articles for folks to read. Uh, kind of skip over those for now and read those at your leisure. And item 3A... Wait, 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 wait. <clears throat> it says here, sandstone shapes <clears throat> forged by gravity, which, of course, is the natural model, right? Right. Do you think these are natural erosion or did somebody do them? Oh, no, somebody did them, and they're sculpted. Too. Okay, 
if that's true, what do you think? Because I got my own ideas. What do you think the artist, whoever he, she, or it may have been, was trying to communicate by replicating this incredibly sinuous, almost uh, sensual art form over and over again? Oh, it's, there, there's so much sculpting in the arches with various people, and then the inside. Well, I'm not talking uh, about the decoration. That, that's a higher level. I'm talking about the basic geometry itself. What do you think the arch, given how many there are, stands for? Uh, the arches are a type of portal. Ah! Yes. So they're a 3D analog to a hyperdimensional 4D or more portal between somewhere and somewhere, i.e. maybe dimensions. Yes, and like ah. I said, the moon is kind of an actuator that is triggering the activation at Well, at let's not get times. there yet. Let's, let's, let's stay okay. with Utah. You know, yeah. Let's try to do this very metonymic. Uh, for people who are sitting out there saying, what are these guys talking about? This is just geology. Yeah, and when you learn uh, or when you come to recognize these people's faces, um, the interior, the, the inner perimeter of the arches feature these people. So these folks from uh, Sirius, you've got the, So it's all these different people from the different areas uh, where they come from. And the arch has allowed this galactic community. I mean, the arch was the, the big forward step that allowed these different races to all come together and evolve from there into this federation. You understand so that, my next question is, how the hell do you know that? Uh, these are just, I, I can't prove this and even what I'm saying. These are just insights I've gathered from my research. So these are kind of resonances in your search for patterns as to who's doing it, who did it, why they did it, how they did it, and why it's here for us to see. Yeah, I, when I look at them now, I mean, it's no different than looking at a portrait of Abraham Lincoln or George oh Washington or something like that. Yeah, these mm. people are so well known uh, throughout this federation, and we are not at the point where we, we even recognize any of this, but in time, um, it's when this all comes out again, there, these faces will become as familiar to us as Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Can I throw something in here? Sure, sure. About the arch. Remember in folklore, doorways are always magical because they're in between one room and the next. Right. And, mag and magic can always be done in doorways. And I also remember uh, seeing something on television a while back that was discussing the properties of the St. Louis Arch uh -huh. and the weird stuff that it does with weather and that they're thinking that it actually protects the city from uh, certain types of storms like hurricanes and things like that. Tornadoes? Yeah, something like that. Do you I, have I a know link? that they were Could, I don't. I, I don't. vaguely remember it, but I remember that there was an inquiry into the the uh the properties of it in relationship to weather. Well we know that geometry in three D somehow connects to geometry in higher dimensions and that's where this physics manifests. 
And so if you create the right, I'm thinking pyramids. Pyramids are, you know, that shape because it, it, it you know, it creates a tremor in the force. It does physical things. And in fact, I've got a little guy sitting upstairs whirling around under Char, one of Charlie's pyramids that stops and starts and stands still and waits for the moon to move and waits for the earth to move around the sun. And, you know, if everything else is exactly the same, it will rotate and not rotate depending upon an unknown X factor, which I think is, you know, the connection between this dimension and higher dimensions in my living room here in northern, you know, New Mexico, the land of enchantment. Uh, I can't prove it yet, but, but we'll, we'll, we will get there. So the arch, the idea, remember the, the famous thing in Stargate, uh, the, the um, you know, uh, next generation when they created the holodeck and you got to it through a what? A doorway. An arch. Remember the arch. You have to call for the computer to manifest the arch. That's how you enter the holodeck in Star in in, in Stargate, not Stargate, but in uh, Star Trek: Next Generation. Yes, and I, I had shared a couple of photos uh, a few months ago on a show. Uh, it kind of got overlooked, maybe. Uh, but one of our listeners, Paul Stein, uh, he had sent me. Uh, I was looking for someone to send me um, footage of the path, the walking path to Delicate Arch. So I'm looking for a few things, and I really need, you know, pictures on the Internet weren't enough. I, I, so he, he said, yes, I had a chest camera, and I recorded it. And, you know, would that be of any help? And it was uh, very helpful. And so one of the things on that, uh, that I and I shared a couple of stills from that is that when he gets to the arch and he's filming it, the sun is shining through the arch and it's casting a square door shadow. The arch is what curved. Yes, the shadow is like a door in your house. It's a door square. How the hell does be. that work? Because they sculpted the ground in such a way that it gives you a square doorway shadow. Oh, my, my. Kind of like Kubrick and uh, um, uh, Arthur deciding on the monolith as opposed to the tetrahedron for the E.T. artifact. Yeah, it's just another clue saying, yes, this is the, this is the doorway. The monolith was a, was a symbolic representational hyperdimensional doorway. You know how I know? Because I measured it one years ago. I measured it for some weird reason and realized that what Arthur had done is very cleverly take the, the mathematics of the sphere inside a tetrahedron, not the sphere around the tetrahedron. And when you do that, all the mathematics of the monolith in, uh, in 2001 fall out on the floor. He basically made an Emily Dickinson cleverly concealed you know, hyperdimensional tetrahedron in the form of the black doorway monolith. Very cool. Yes. Um, Is the United Nations building that geometry? You know, that's a hell of a good question of which I can't answer, but Google with the is... meteor With the meteor in the meditation room mm -hmm. there? Google is your friend. <laughs> so you can find out while we're talking. Anyway, John, so you have this epiphany that somebody did this stuff. It's not just random rocks. 
Yes. And little by little, I'm, I'm gaining more uh, physical evidence and scientific evidence. And my item uh, 3A and 3B are examples of that. Um, Please 3A, explain. Yeah. yeah, 3A ties into... So I'm seeing all these um, colorful... I'll call them holograms. But the sun shines through <clears throat> these apertures... And you have this pool. No, wait, 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 wait. When you say you're seeing these, are you physically in Arches Park, or are you looking at it on on Google Earth on the internet? Uh, both, from a hyper, you know, a higher dimensional perspective, out of body, and then from Google, and then also I now I found a one picture. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Stop again. I didn't know you'd done out of body to Arches Park. You've been oh, very God, quiet yes. about. You've, you've been very oh. quiet. <laughs> Uh, it's been a continuous thing since August of 20, 20, uh, 2021 there. Sure. And um, so that's helped me. The, these tools. Um, so that's like that your out-of-body 4D radar, and then you go and search the archives on the Internet for anybody's tourist images, the, the, the Google you know, surface views, all of that to basically check out what you have spotted uh, in your extra-dimensional persona exactly i know it's there so when i come back and look with my human eyes i i, I tried i should be able to find it or and uh, there's these colorful holograms where they create just in, in midair you have this image of a face and, it, and it's beautiful and it's colorful and it, and then the sun moves and then that goes away but this uh time crystals in uh, my item 3b is a wonderful article where it's a newly discovered form of matter that we've previously unknown, and these crystals, and they're inside the sandstone. So that is part of their technology <clears throat> that we don't really know about yet. But when the sun comes through, uh, they have all these three-sided apertures. Richard, I, I described it before as hold, a director holding his hands up, framing a camera shot. So you have all these three-sided apertures and the sun comes through and it's creating these wonderful illusions and they're just so beautiful. And I found a photograph. Wait, wait, when you say illusions, you don't mean, what, what, what do you mean? It's like a holograph. You, That's not an illusion. At... That's a real physical thing. Okay. It's illusions are, thing. you know, fantasies of the mind. You're talking about a, obviously some kind of sophisticated technology that at the right sun angle is activated, you think it might be crystals in the in the rock. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. So I found uh, one picture where a professional photographer is taking a picture of balanced rock, and the sun is coming up over the serpent mound, and the sun is shining. So he gets this ray. I don't think he, he has no clue what he's, he's picturing here because – Part of it's cut off. He's more focused on balanced rock. But um, when I saw it, I go, oh, my God, there's he, he caught this in this image. You can see a holograph of this face of this person. So when the sun comes up on the morning of this, uh, it wasn't, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the equinox or anything. This is happening about just kind of every day the sun's coming up and it's shining through these apertures all over the world. You know, they're all over the earth. This is the whole earth. So I have to get other people to see these holograms. And I think once I do, everything really, 
kicks up a notch. I would say that's probably an understatement. Okay, look, we are now literally at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Jonathan Womack and Georgia Lambert. And Kintia, will, with her art background, will join us a little later in the program. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're about to leave Earth, the geoglyphic planetary art of God knows who. I'm putting that in air quotes. And when we return, we're going to take you from what John has been researching in the form of an extraordinary terrestrial display of ancient, ancient art on a scale unimagined by most folks still. We're going to take you to his discovery that there appears to be counterparting art. Is that a phrase? Well, it is now. On the moon. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, June 17th, 2023. My guests this morning are Psy Researcher, publisher, artiste in his own right, and not a bad musician, and he has great computer graphics, Jonathan Womack, and my friend and colleague, uh, Georgia Lambert, who's our resident metaphysician. And when I lay this this theory, which is evolved over the last couple of years uh, based on the scale of some of the art that I have looked at. Um, I'm really going to need hold to hold uh, George's hand. 
even though we're separated by a thousand miles and Skype. So <clears throat> without further ado, let me take you to the moon because the purvey of the moon as a possible place where artificial stuff could in fact reside began in my imagination back in 1994 when my dad, uh, God bless his soul, gave me a book by George Leonard called Someone Else is on the Moon. And he thought he was doing me a tremendous favor because, of course, my, my dad, you know, did a lot of stuff for us kids. I remember when we were really, really young, when we were like, in, you know, five or six, he would take us to the back shop door of the local newspaper so we could see how newspapers were created and the presses and the guys running around and all this. I mean, he would take us all kinds of really cool places. So he buys me this book for, I think it was my birthday, and he gives it to me and I start reading and I realize very quickly that George Leonard was not the kind of guy to look for uh, unusual anomalies on the moon because everything he saw, he attributed to active alien machines. He called them spray machines and other huge gargantuan you know, technology, obviously coming from a background of late 20th century um, Earthman, a citizen of the United States, looking at the, what NASA had been doing uh, with Apollo, et cetera, et cetera. But the pictures, they were actually pretty, pretty well reproduced. And I began to see weird things on the pictures, quite apart from the stuff that uh, George Leonard was trying to point out. And that's what led me step by step, almost inexorably, to the realization that apart from the oddities that, that Leonard had, had noted that didn't turn out to be real anything at all, these photographs that he had somehow gotten, and he described in the book how he'd gotten, you know, original copies and, you know, first generation prints and all that from headquarters, somebody had slipped him some really interesting images which actually showed what to me looked eerily like some of the geometry that I had seen at Sidonia. And so in 1994, I began looking seriously to see if someone had left something on the moon. So now what you want to do is you want to go back to uh, the other side of midnight. You want to click on tonight's banner. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, there is a fast link to items. Click on my name, and that will take you to my items. Item number three. This was the first collection of objects that I found on a Lunar Orbiter 3 uh, image, uh, both a medium and a high-resolution shot that showed pretty convincingly something built by somebody that did not belong there. And you can see the montage in item number three. On the right, there's this bowling pin-shaped thing sticking up with the shadow that I call the shard. And just to the left of it, and many, 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 many miles far beyond, because it's tilted, and that indicates that it's tilted because it used to be vertical, and now it's tilted because of the perspective of the geometry of looking at it from a long distance away over the horizon. So the local vertical is not the vertical of the camera, there is this much, much taller and much more distant tower 
with a geometric glittering cube of glass with subcompartments on the top. And that's labeled on the right of that montage in, in item number three. Well, the close-up in item number four is what the, uh, the shard looks like. And I've been looking at this thing for decades now, and it still is to me partly as mysterious as is the background, that horizon, which does not look like any lunar horizon that um, I'd ever imagined. And that's where I first began to get the idea that maybe, just maybe, there were two kinds of artifacts built by somebody standing up against entropy on a place that should basically be leveled or have nothing but rounded crater rims or hills because of constant micrometeorite bombardment. Those two things together in a place called Sinus Medi, which when you look at the full moon from Earth is right in the middle of the moon. That dark area, that mare, that ancient now waterless lunar sea, which is really supposed to be uh, lava from inside the moon, that's right in the center of the moon. If you were standing there looking straight up, the moon would be high overhead, uh, a little over a quarter of a million miles away, depending upon the orbit and when you look. So I'm looking at this shard thingy, and I'm looking at the backdrop, and I'm beginning to wonder if the surface of the moon is a lot more bizarre and complex and artificially modified like George Leonard had claimed, except it wasn't being modified now. The stuff we were seeing was extraordinarily ancient. I mean, really, 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 really old, maybe millions or even billions of years old. Remember, Sidonia is roughly uh, uh, half a million in my uh, astronomical dating, as we'll talk about tomorrow night. So I'm looking at the moon and I'm thinking, good grief, how come the Apollo guys never mentioned this? They never said anything. They never held a press conference. Um, they've never talked about these details. It's just like it's there in the files. And if you find it, great. And if you don't, well, good luck. So as my studies went on, uh, item number five, this is another uh, image from uh, one of the Apollo missions, the early Apollo 10 mission. Again, looking uh, sideways, um, obliquely, as they say, across Sinus Medi, and that large crater is called Trisnecker in the middle of the picture. The area just above it, which looks like it has lots of interesting detail, the dark crater on the left of the shadows, that's a crater called Ukert. And the stuff to the right doesn't really have any names. And so I began playing around with the images. Now, how do I get the images? In these days, this is long before internet, you know, the 90s, I literally called up um, Houston, the uh, photo lab there, as part of the uh, Johnson Space Center. And at that time, you could order commercial prints from negatives on file at the Houston NASA Center. You could also call up the National Space Science Data Center, which is in Washington, in Maryland, actually, outside Washington, at the Goddard Space Flight Center. And I got to know the folks there. And I started ordering two or more sets of the same picture because, remember, science is anchored in independent confirmation. So I figured if I would get the same 
frame number from two different NASA data centers, two different sources, ultimately the same mission, and looked at their negative or positive print representations of this data, and I found it on both sets of data, I could be pretty sure that it was real. It was really on the moon, photographed Apollo astronauts. So item number six, all you have to do with that photograph in number five is take it into an imaging program and just turn up the brightness. That's all you have to do, turn up the brightness. It turns out that even this primitive medium called film had much more latitude than I'd expected. And so what did I see on the cropped frame? Because I cropped about the top half, cutting it off before getting to Trisnecker to make an enlargement. And then I simply, you know, expanded the, the tonal range by ultimately brightening the image. And bingo, there was geometry in the sky above Sinus Medi, photographed by the first second manned orbital mission orbiting the moon, Apollo 10. And when you blow up sections of it, number seven, there's this incredible glistening glass tower standing up above the lunar horizon, obviously one tier backward from some other stuff standing up in front, casting a shadow of its presence on the lightened, uh, whatever it is, glass uh, far beyond, kind of like the lunar orbiter image. Anyway, this was the beginning of my foray into a stunning set of architectural realities and the sweep of extraordinary ancient civilizations who obviously had, if not gods, the power of gods and who reshaped, I ultimately have determined, not just the Earth and the Moon and Mars, but the whole damn solar system. And beneath this layering glass shell with stunning internal geometry, which I defy anyone still anchored in the so-called real mainstream world of science to explain items number five, six, and seven. You tell me what the explanation is. Then look at number eight, because number eight is a close-up taken from the same NASA official photograph from Houston of 4816. That's the Apollo 10 frame number, uh, A10-32-4816. And all those objects in that close-up, every single form, every single glint, every single piece of geometry, what you're looking at is a totally artificial lunar landscape of gargantuan mega buildings, mega structures, mega arcologies, mega everything. And all you do is download the image, take it into an imaging program and begin to zoom in. So it's against this backdrop that you could have, you know, hit me, knocked me over with the proverbial feather when John said the other day on the um, NASA data, on the NASA data coming from uh, Apollo and coming from the other missions to the moon, 
I found artwork in your lunar dome, which looks eerily like the same kind of art I found in Utah. And I said, John, when can we do a show? So tonight, John, take it away. Well, imagine what the astronauts must have thought when, you know, like Alan Bean, and they're seeing these holographic, I'm not going to use the word illusions anymore, just these holographic images. And let me, let me stop so- you there. Let me stop you there. I think that all of the astronauts we sent to the moon and Apollo, when they came home, they had their minds altered. They were brainwashed. They were fed a script. And that's why Alan Bean, when he reproduced his first photo or first artwork of the moon as seen from orbit, it looked like the moon that you see in the photographs that NASA's released. Whereas years later, when he says in his own writings, he had this epiphany and now he could depict the moon more like it felt. He had two levels of remembrance. He had the script that had been fed to him by the controllers that brainwashed all the astronauts when they came back. And because he was an artist, either he broke the mold, he broke the conditioning, or he had internal epiphanies and realized that he had to keep pretending it was all his imagination. But Alan Bean switched his art literally around the time we did our first press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., on structures on the moon, which surprised the hell out of a lot of people. At the same time, Bean is suddenly transforming his art and depicting art of the moon. Now looks stunningly like all the NASA photography, which has quietly been posted on the NASA websites. Absolutely no one officially saying we've made a material evidentiary change pending what's coming, which is disclosure of what's really there. So all those astronauts, they lived bifurcated lives. I think some of them have had these weird memories and and remembrances leaking through, and they have to get a booster periodically to reinforce the block. And a prime example is how Neil uh, Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin reacted. Neil became a hermit. He wouldn't talk about anything. So I think, frankly, he was not mind-controlled because it would be like, you know, mind-controlling a temple or a sacred archive. He became a human representative to the reality which out there. But the, but the, but the, um, the uh, you know, agreement was you can't say anything. But I think he knew full well because he talked about it at the White House on the 20th anniversary of Apollo about secrets you know, covered with truth's layers on the moon. Well, truth in science is never covered by anything. You just have to dig it out. And the other thing is Aldrin. Remember when when that Bible something uh, uh, conspiracy guy, Bart Seibel, uh, walked up to him one day in Hollywood and tried to get him to swear on a Bible that he had landed on the moon and, and Aldrin just socked him? I think it's because, and there's other evidence, but there's too much to go into tonight, that that Aldrin periodically had to have reinforcements of the mind control blocking because he also remembered a moon that was very, very different than his public statements 
and he wound up subliming or sublimating that moon by writing a book called uh, um, what was the name? It was a Tigris Rising or something, a science fiction novel about ancient aliens on the moon. So it came out through science fiction. Maybe that was the way he could massage his conscience and his internal doubts. And can you imagine if you go through the most incredible experience of your life and then you meet people on Earth who say it's all a fake, it can't be real, and you begin because of your own internal cracking, the real the reality leaks through and you, you can't decide which is which. That's a horrible limbo to be left in. And fortunately, I think that limbo is about to come to an end and the surviving Apollo astronauts are going to be able to reconnect with the astonishing memories of the amazing things they really saw. Yes, Richard, I wish I had a graphic in front of me. You used it for your Apollo 50th anniversary special back in 2019. It was a painting of Alan Bean, and you have this this quote on there that he's talking about in this interview. And when I read that uh, again recently, it it all made sense. He went through the same thing I did because here he is painting, and then he's he's looking at it. He says, it does not feel right. Yep. And then his next sentence is something like, I adjusted my view. Yes. And then, oh, now it feels right. Because he he understood there's this uh, Star Trek magic eye poster, you know, my item number one. When he looked at it with that, and then he saw it. Oh, I, now I see it. Okay. Now he paint. So, he went through that same process where it didn't feel right because he's looking at it through his conditioned human eyes yeah. that say this can't, yeah. Well, yeah. they had to brainwash the, the way I got onto this is that Ed Mitchell was doing a, you know, NASA had the astronauts all do public speaking tours, you know, after they came back to Earth. And, and Ed Mitchell, who was the uh, lunar module pilot and a colleague of mine, I met him several times and we even had a debate about lunar ruins on Art Bell one night back in, I think it was 96. Anyway, um, he was speaking in front of a um, um, uh, group, kids, I think it was kids, somewhere around Washington. And one of the kids in the question and answer period stood up and said, uh, Dr. Mitchell, what did it feel like to walk on the moon? And Ed Mitchell suddenly realized, standing there on the stage in front of like a thousand people and kids, that he could not remember what it felt like, the emotional high, the, you know, when we have a really out of this world experience, it's, it's, it's immortalized, it's burned into our memory as the cliche goes. And you can recall not just the events, but the, the feelings you had around the events when you experienced them. And he realized he could not experience anything except like a script. We went to, you know, uh, column A, we went to Boulder B, we went to this rock, we went to that crater. It was all like just a metonymic script. There was no emotional attachment. And he got so disturbed by this that he went to a very high-level professional hypnotherapist, who I happen to know, and this individual tried to regress him to the point coming out of the lunar module and walking on the moon and she could not get 
past a hypnotic block because every time she'd get there, he'd say, no, 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 go on, go on. That's not important. And nothing she did as a professional therapist with decades of training could pierce whatever had put a globe around Mitchell's mind and prevented him from recalling in hypnosis what he really did on the moon. And that's when I started looking at all the other astronauts, and that's when I came to the conclusion in, uh, in Dark Mission that all of them in that 21-day quarantine period where they were isolated, remember, John, where they were stuck away in, a, in an aluminum trailer to keep us all from dying of you know, lunar diseases brought back from Apollo from the moon, that 21 days, I think, was spent in the conditioning, the hypnosis series, the drug regimen, whatever it was that resulted in them remembering only a NASA moon, not the one that's really out there tonight. Oh, I wish we could sit down with Buzz just for five or ten minutes and say, hey, now look. look it at may this. happen now that the politics <laughs> have totally changed. It's on my on my bucket list. Come on. Well, you could have knocked me over with a feather too, Richard, when I saw the shard in Arches Park at Delicate Arch, and then I realized, oh my gosh, that's Richard's shard from the moon, and here we are, and everything just, a lot of pieces of the puzzle came together. Okay, which means we have to go to your section of Radio with Pictures again, and I think we want to go to number four, right? Uh, number four. Yeah, it was um, just a quick graphic I did of the capstone graphic. You did a show a few weeks ago on um, capstone is a little microwave of an unmanned spacecraft that's supposed to be carrying out really sophisticated science in this unique orbit around the moon where NASA is going to put the so-called gateway space station in preparation for the Artemis human landings on the moon under the NASA program. And it uh, had a lot of interesting little issues before it got into its lunar orbit. Uh, they gave us a picture the other day, which was bizarre because it's, it's all fuzzy and blurry. And when I apply my programs to it, it turns out that it's studded with all kinds of amazing geometry, which, of course, is why we're not seeing any raw capstone images except for that first image. But even in the first image, for someone who's got the right vision, it shows amazing stuff, right, Jonathan? Oh, does it ever. And, you know, now that I, once I got that magic eye poster vision, everything becomes clear. And so you just start looking around the planets and you see everything. And the main, there's this one main character. And uh, the closest I, I kind of find of her is this Sumerian statue I use this in my graphics a lot, and it's this reptoid-looking uh, woman, and yeah, I mean, she's all over, and she's featured more prominently than anyone. Like, she'll be on the side of Mars, taking up the whole planet, huge, huge geoglyph, and then here you see her in Arches Park on the mural that everybody walks past. So she's all over the Earth and the moon, and so number five um, is, yeah, I'm just trying to show she's on the moon here. And the what what they do with their art is they use the, the surface 
And then they use the mountains as part of the, the visual too. And then the glass above that, though it all creates this kind of holographic thing. It's not just like a canvas you hang on the wall at the Louvre, like we humans do. It's this multidimensional artwork. So, Which changes with angle and sun illumination, right? Yeah, the scope of it, I don't know how to describe very, very well. But yes, if you're, say, floating 20,000 feet above Arches Park and you're looking down at it, the amazing thing is, let's say you rotate your body just around in a circle. You look behind, you look east, west, north. It all changes. And then if you move your position, uh, say, 10 miles east, and then you look around, and it's all different. And then you descend to 10,000 feet, and you move around, and it's all different. So it's on a scale that is so beyond. It's not surprising why people dismiss it, because it's um, so beyond what we are conditioned well, to. Well, they're see. not used to thinking on a scale where a technology can re-sculpt whole planets. Yes. That to them is fantasy or magic or fiction or science fiction, but it can't happen in the real universe, the real world. Actually, yeah. it can, it has. But we're starting to talk about terraforming planets. Oh, at a very, very, very primitive level. Sure, but at least the idea is... Yeah, but that's not new. That goes back to Sagan in the 70s, where we, we talked on the ship one night about you know terraforming Mars and the ethics of terraforming another world if there has its own life forms? Do you have a right to change the environment so that every life form that currently is alive there will die? Again, no. godlike powers given to current humanity? Huh, perish the thought. What, what was the old poster, don't give guns to ducks? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, we are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are... Georgia Lambert, whose voice you heard there, and uh, John uh, Womack, and we're going to get back to what we're doing. But, I mean, w w if you think this is kind of weird and far out, wait till you see the next part of what we're going to be talking about. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale
and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone on this now uh saturday night sunday morning edition of the other side of midnight we have transmogrified into the 18th so it's now the wee hours after midnight here in the land of enchantment imagine if as this model has been developing since 1994 in my own research we live not just in one of those average run-of-the-mill you know, solar systems that had been projected in science fiction or before the work of the exoplanet people and the Hubble Space Telescope and the huge groundbreaking observatories that can actually detect the gravitational wobble of stars, you know, a thousand light years away in their invisible planets. Suppose, against the backdrop of all those observations now, beginning in 19... 95, when the first extrasolar planet, a planet orbiting another sun, another star, was first discovered by the uh, uh, guys at Harvard. <clears throat> and Ted Koppel, if Keith is listening, Ted Koppel, remember Keith, they did a live remote broadcast from the Harvard College Observatory because of the momentous nature of this astonishing discovery of the first planet beyond the solar system? Well, now there are about 5,000 cataloged, credentialed, double and triple checked in the literature, extrasolar planetary systems, and a lot more planets. And what's amazing, and has not really made the headlines like I think it's going to in the next few uh, months or maybe a year or two, is that in all those thousands upon thousands of extra solar planetary systems, they found something which I was taught back in, in high school, in, in grammar school, that everybody all over the earth has been taught that the human race, earth, the solar system, this planetary system, one of billions and billions and billions and they're all randomly produced by nature. And so we should, when we look out into space <clears throat> with, this is back in the 50s, 
with a projected technology that would allow us to see other solar systems and planets orbiting Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri and all that, that we would see basically analogs of this solar system with the little guys nestled against the sun, relatively speaking, and the big gas giants, you know, beginning half a billion miles and extending billions of miles beyond, but we would find that we are totally, totally average. The real science, which began that night on Ted Koppel's show in 1995 at Harvard, says, in fact, that's not the universe we live in at all. Because of all those countless now myriad thousands of extrasolar systems way across the Milky Way, we are the only ones that look like this. The only one. We're unique. So that little scrambling you hear, those little footsteps you hear running madly into the dark in all directions are the mainstream astrophysicists and cosmologists and planetary scientists who have been absolutely pulling their hair out by the roots, trying to figure out after all of the Copernican revolution stuff and we're just average and when our technology gets better, we're going to find all kinds of other analogs of this solar system. No, we're the only one. Again, let me repeat, we're the only one that looks like us and acts like us and has the little guys in toward the sun and the big guys away and life, intelligent life on the third rock from the sun, etc., etc., etc. So my conclusion, and I'm going to have David Sarita on with some amazing new numerical data in a, in a, you know, a week or two, we are living in a designer solar system and one of the per- permanent Uh, archetypes of any design is art there is art across the solar system very badly eroded incredibly damaged incredibly old but part of what was done here with us put into the middle kind of like a nursery or a school or kindergarten so john now take us to your discovery of artwork on the moon. Discovery of artwork, let's see. That started with, uh, let me go to my items and find the symbol that led me. It would be my item number 14. Okay. This is a mural at, it's low res and it looks crappy. It doesn't look like much of anything. But um, yeah, when I saw this, to me, it, all this jumps out you know once you see the 3d poster everything jumps out so you have this white in the middle of the image this white area and around it is is all this glyphs i mean the white area is in hera's that's her mouth she's always she has this round mouth i'm going to show you on your moon slides richard uh this it's her but um she has this round mouth and above it is her nose and then you can kind of see the dark circles that are her eyes and then you have her headdress uh with this separating line of kind of black coming down her forehead um 
So I don't know if you can see that, but yeah, so all this jumps out at me in this holographic manner. Um, so this, I, and I'm looking at the white part and all the art around. I'm going, gosh, I know that where have I seen this? And it struck me I had seen it in your images of the moon and, and the shard. And so I went to look at that again. And sure enough, now I have my 3D eyes. I go, oh, my gosh, there it is. So if we could go back to um, your, uh, see, your image number three and four, I believe it is. Okay, checking, checking. Yeah, three is the wide angle showing the shard and the, and the tower cube, and four yes. is the close-up. So if you look at the tower close-up, it's an inset you have there. Uh, this is the NASA 1967 lunar. It's the wide angle. And then you have a, the inset, and you have the text there, tower close-up. So maybe I can get some folks to see some of this as I do. Uh, the bright white area is her headdress, and then the area beneath that is her face, and she's looking almost directly at the camera, but just a little bit angled to the right. And if you go to the letter L in the word close, I, I'll try to direct you to her mouth, because she always has this round mouth that's represented. She's always breathing this, I'm calling it the Genesis breath. So if uh, that letter L, if you just go up from that a bit, you'll see a round crater. That's her mouth. And if you follow that up a bit, you'll see her, her nose and her two eyes. And then, of course, her headdress is the, uh, you know, that she's wearing. And now in my slides, if we go to number... Um, I can use like two of my slides to really point this out. So if you go to my item number six, this would be a good example. Um, item number six, we see the, on the left side, I have an image of the west coast of the U.S. And here she is as big as day again. You have this white roundish area and the i have two green or a yellow circle and within that yellow circle we have your your tower basically um there's an area kind of in the center where there's some white and this is her mouth and the the top of the yeah, yellow I, I think that's around the great salt lake Yes, and the top area of this yellow outline is her headdress. And if, you know, between that and her mouth, you should be able to make out her eyes and, and a nose. And she's not looking directly at the camera, but a little to the right. So it's the same kind of view as, as your uh, inset. You know, the problem I'm having, John, is I'm looking at this and I'm seeing too many images. Georgia? Yes. Yes, Georgia. Yeah, let, let me throw something in here. It's hard to paint these because there's so many overlapping, <laughs> beautifully paradoia gorgeousness of other faces. Yeah, uh, a couple of things for, for the listeners that are looking at this kind of thing for the first time. Um, you have to have an eye that's trained 
to see these things. For instance, most people would look at the sky and say a blue sky, but an artist would notice that the shade of blue is much lighter near the horizon than it is up, you know, 12 o'clock overhead. And a physicist uh, will tell you why. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so let me give you an example. There's, there's a period in art where we had two completely different models back to back with one another. And that was the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s. By the way, George, hold it there for a sec. For people who don't think Georgia knows what she's talking about, go look in her section at the three pieces of her original art, and and you better be sitting down. They are stunning. (laughs) They are exquisite. And no higher authority than Kinthea looks at George's art and says, I am humble. So so go ahead. the, the thing about this, the, the, the two different kinds of art is in the late 1800s, you had the Art Nouveau movement, where everything was very curvy and organic and living. And then right after that, you had the Art Deco period, where everything was very linear, very Roman, cross-hatching angles, straight lines. So as you're training people to look at these pictures – the straight line geometry is easier to see for the average individual. I mean, you look at pictures, you can see pyramids on Cydonia. You can see yeah, angles. It's, 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 a, it's a rectilinear geometry that Sagan right. said right. when, he was, when, when he made that same famous phrase, you know, the <clears throat> intelligence on Earth first manifests itself in the geometric regularity of right. its constructions. But, but when but you're dealing with art... It's a whole different, whole different it's, everything. It's a, it's a different, it's, it's a different critter because the the rectilinear stuff is the easiest to see. What Jonathan and the most boring artistically. Is, and what Jonathan is looking at is the more Art Nouveau type stuff that's very organic, and you really have to have a trained eye to begin to pick that stuff out. But. You know, for those that are looking at these pictures and are saying, well, I don't see anything, um, (laughs) it's because your eye just isn't habituated to it. Now, Richard, you and Kinthea have been, you know, doing this kind of stuff, looking for ruins and the moon and Mars for for decades. And so you've got a really trained eye, Um, but the average person doesn't have that. So we have to be patient with people that are having a hard time seeing this stuff because um, it it just takes practice. Well, see, one of the foundations I wanted to lay tonight for everybody who thinks that we're basically have this incredible stash and they wish they could have access (laughs) is that if you keep looking, there will be this sudden gestalt, this light bulb, this, and you'll begin to see things, patterns, shapes, familiarity. And then, of course, the critics will say, oh, it's pareidolia. You're just projecting. I used to think that. That's why I stuck with the geometry. But even when you hear uh, Carlotto tomorrow night, the face on Mars has stunning regular geometry as the foundation for the artistic representations of the 3D model that Kinthea first saw and spent agonizing thousands of hours bending over a, over a uh, table with clay, you know, breaking her back literally to try to sculpt these two angles in a three-dimensional 
analog clay format. And then later, Carlotto, with his magic computer algorithms, did the same thing digitally. And when you bring them together, and of course we'll show you tomorrow night, they were the same. That's what I'm looking for is how do we confirm with science art, which is intrinsically not calibratable in terms of Euclidean geometry. Uh, a, a quick thing just uh, for kicks and giggles about the uh, face on Mars. Uh, you know the old trick where you take a photograph and, uh, of a person looking straight at you and then you cut it in half and mm-hmm. you double each side and it looks like two completely different people? Yeah, because our sides are not well, symmetric. Right, exactly. Well, the face on Mars, one side is very primate, the other is very feline. Meow. At, and back and back into in uh, Blavatsky's secret doctrine, there's a part where it's talking about spirits coming to incarnate on Earth, and there was a debate between choosing a primate form to maneuver in or a feline form, and the primate form won out because of opposable thumbs and making capability. I didn't know that. Well, now you do. Good heavens, I've been, you know, trying to create this this gestalt. What does it mean? What were they trying to tell us? Why do they fuse two archetypal genetic forms on Earth? And you're saying it came down to a thumb? It, it, a choice, yeah. To which, which form was going to be manipulated. Wow. And Richard, the face on Mars... They use that style over and over in all the planets uh, where you have a face and then they'll take a part of it, like, say, your cheek, and they make that embedded art. So it still looks like a face, but when you get closer and you zoom in, you see that that embedded part, it's made up of all smaller faces and smaller. So um, another example on Earth would be the Western, my slide number six again, um, the Western U.S., it's a face just like on Mars. And then in, in the middle of it, they have kind of cut out. Not, It's made of embedded art. So if, if I were to back, tell you what I see, you'd start to giggle. <clears throat> probably not. You'll never imagine what I'm looking at. <laughs> Oh, it's so amazing. You can get lost in it for Yes, hours, yes, like I yes. And I, oh. now, I now have a, I think, plausible model for why what we're seeing might just not be our projection. It oh. may actually be conscious art, but done by a technology and on a scale that nobody yet is even imagining as possible until they're given political permission by an agency called NASA that, yes, we can now look for ET artifacts beyond the earth yeah if we go to let's see my slide number 15 i have uh your your shard inset there so just imagine that that shard the it's rising out of the white area of the moon's you know the moon and so you have the neck and then the middle section would be her head of course it's made up of many faces i'm just talking about kind of a main She's the main character. So let's say you have her neck and the middle area, that's her head, and the top part is her headdress. And, and the headdress is made up of all faces and two and all. But when you stand back and look, 
So this is how it works. And if you were on the moon and you orbited the shard, it changes and you see somebody else's face and then somebody. But uh, the way you have well, it well, pictured the, the, here. The, the, the scale is vastly different. You know, the, the balanced rock in Arches Park is probably what? Maybe 100 feet high or something? No, it's like 68 feet. Oh, yeah, that's close enough for folk music. The shard on the moon is miles tall. Yes. Now, the gravity is one-sixth, but frankly, I'm now beginning to think that maybe gravity is almost irrelevant because the technology that is doing this or did this is so different and evolved beyond our current primitive efforts that it's like trying to explain in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy how the mice could build a freeway off-ramp and demolish Earth in the process. Exactly. Yep. And as in my other slides, uh, I guess they're self-explanatory. I'm just don't uh, say that we're on radio. <laughs> Come on. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much I can add. I'm just you got plenty uh, of time. You got tons of time. All right. Well, uh, seventeen. Let's see. Uh, slide seventeen. It's just another comp composite where I'm trying to bring out some of this art so people can see it. It's, it's Are not you just saying lots. this guy was wearing sunglasses? Just, just, <laughs> yeah. just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And it's a definite commercial for Ray-Ban. For example, um, in the slide 17, I have on the right side, uh, this is balanced rock area. It's uh, flanked by these two, towers let's call them um and then i show the balanced rock i just have two eyes circled with yellow circles i mean it's a bunch of faces again they just don't make one face and then hang it on the wall they they make this art so that it's a hundred faces depending on how where you're looking at it and where the sun is in the sky and all these different factors uh, the scope is amazing so and then i have you know the mouth and and he, but even the the balanced rock is resting on this structure that uh, this uh, from this view it's a kind of a dragon face looking not directly at the camera but at the, to the right just uh, slightly, and I've come to recognize these different dragons or dogons or whatever they are. They're another species in this federation, and they're all over, and you start to recognize them. Just like Hera, you know, these main characters, there's like a dozen main characters and then maybe another dozen uh, secondary characters that maybe are the architects and scientists or this kind of thing. And um, so moving along, eight, 18 is another composite where I'm trying to get people to see this stuff like I do, where it just it really jumps out at you. And um on the right, this is um, the Balanced Rock complex. Uh, behind Balanced Rock, you have this mound or this mesa. I'm, I'm calling it Serpent Mound because from the sky, it's pretty clearly a serpent. But there's this sphinx on there, and a part of it has crumbled, but the, this head... Is, is still there intact and as you move around this feature again it changes it's not just one face it's multiple faces okay let me let me try to introduce some analysis here because mm -hmm. i know a lot of you are looking at this and saying 
these guys really have got to quit smoking. <laughs> they really have pushed the envelope. <clears throat> now, see, knowing what I know, that we could be dealing with two, at a minimum, two different epochs and two different technologies, and I'm using air quotes around technologies, like one which is literally the ability with some kind of machines or gadgets that we will ultimately, you know, invent or, you know, the black ops crowd will, you know, reveal it someday that they back engineer something like this from one of these crashed saucers. And so you basically can sculpt rock. It's basically a beam, you know, force beam, whatever, and you use it like a paintbrush and you literally can take a rock and you can create any kind of image that you want. Are you with me so far? Yes. And then you let it sit for <clears throat> on Earth 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 years or a million, and it will erode. Now, here is my criteria for differentiating between that level of super technology, which still fits within the realm of technology, a gadget, energy, that kind of thing, and something that came to me because Robin has been giving me examples for four years. And remember, she's not physically here, so that would be hard. Um, I'm not a very good housekeeper. I do not do a lot of dusting. So one day, I closed the bathroom door, and at the right lighting, I looked at her full-length mirror that she had behind the bathroom door that she would use when she needed to see herself before she went out from head to toe. And something rearranged or carefully as the dust fell, arranged the trajectories of little tiny millions of dust particles. So they have formed a piece of multi-dimensional art in the dust on her mirror, which I have not physically touched in four years hidden behind a door where I normally wouldn't even get to it. I didn't even see it till one day I'm all by myself here. So I don't need to close the door going to the bathroom, right? I closed the door and there with the right lighting suddenly was this art all over this mirror in the dust. And I developed or I had it planted in my little fevered brain or Somehow I had the gestalt to wonder if cosmic timescales, because we really don't know how people reincarnate. What do they do between incarnations? Wouldn't that be kind of boring? If you have to we spend... have very busy lives. Well, busy we, lives. I don't know that. You may know that. I don't know that. So I'm coming at this from outside. And I'm thinking, if you literally have far more capabilities in a higher dimension than when you're stuck in 3D. Would it be possible for someone like Robin to literally influence the trajectory of dust particles so they would create an image that would be meaningful for the audience of one, which I am, which is me? In other words, if she cared to send the very best, what would she be trying to tell me by doing artwork in the dust? And then I went to the garage where her car has been sitting all by itself for four years. And there's artwork in the dust on every 
window and the mice cannot hang in three-dimensional air levitating using little brushes to make the artwork on the vertical panes of the windshield or the back window or whatever. Something else, some other force has literally created artwork in the dust of Robin's car over four years. And I obviously am going to set up the right lights and the right, you know, GoPro and all that. And I'm going to record this in my copious, copious spare time. Here's the bottom line. From these examples, I began to wonder if on a cosmic time frame, not in limited 3D time, you know, this year, that year, next year, but on a much, much larger frame and with an infinite palette and a canvas, was it possible for select individuals who are human in 3D, when they die between incarnations, can they, on a scale unimaginable, reach across dimensions and sculpt everything from dust on mirrors to the extraordinary geoglyphs like the Badlands Guardian that Keith found in the wilds of Canada, which looks incredibly artistic, incredibly accurate, incredibly, you know, evocative, and was done on a scale equivalent to what we're seeing on the moon or Mars. And I lay that before the jury, and who's going to be the first person to tell me that I should get quietly downtown as soon as possible? No, I think you're right on the mark, and I'm glad that you uh, noticed that because a lot of people would <laughs> well, not even. Well, it was put right in my face. How could I not notice it? Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, and well, re- remember, and... in the in the annals of parapsychology, we have lots of examples of poltergeist phenomena, where you know, books and things like that are thrown across the room. I would imagine dust particles are a lot easier to manipulate. Well, let me give you another weird, wild-ass example, <clears throat> which actually developed from a conversation that I had many years ago with Joseph Farrell. And I wish I could get him back on the show. He's always so damn busy. It's time to have another conversation with Joseph. Anyway, Joseph and I were talking, uh, you know, years ago about the weird unpredictability of the American nuclear tests in the South Pacific. And we each independently came to the conclusion that when you light off a nuclear weapon, on an average Thursday, if you do it the following Thursday, you won't get the same effect. Because what the AEC guys, the Atomic Energy Commission guys after World War II, after uh, Alamogordo here and Nagasaki and Hiroshima discovered in their nuclear tests is that they would assemble a given amount of fissionable material and a given amount of uh, of lithium hydroxide, which is what helps create H-bombs, because of the hydroxide part, the hydrogen, the hydrogen bomb. That's where the name came from. And they found that even if they followed formulas and put the same amount of material in each separate bomb, when they would light them off, they got wildly different energy outputs that were totally unmodeled by any of their equations. Like on some days, you know, a bomb that was supposed to give you one megaton, we give you 10. And another day, a bomb that was supposed to give you a megaton would give you uh, 
a quarter of that. And there's no, nothing, nothing in real physics which can explain that. So we will come back to this. Thank you, Keith. We will come back to this uh, when we get to the other side of midnight when we return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. So here's the conclusion that Joseph and I reached and is incredibly relevant to the conversation tonight because we realized that these bombs were being exploded at various times when the position of the planets in the solar system and the rotation of the sun and where the moon was and all this were modulating the hyperdimensional physics. And what the H-bomb is or a nuclear weapon with fissile material is, is basically just a way to create a huge hyperdimensional gate between dimensions. And remember, there's infinite energy by our measurements on the other side. So depending upon how wide the gate, the, the yield of nuclear weapons can vary even by an hour from what the calculations limited only to 3D and uranium, plutonium, and lithium hydroxide etc. would allow us to create in the normal equations. So is it much of a stretch to say that if a nuclear weapon on a short time scale because of the prodigious energies released and the rending of the ether and the plasma connection between dimensions that it portends, is it possible it forms a gate for consciousness as well. And during nuclear weapons tests, I have now been looking 
at, and you're going to have to do this, John, and you too, Georgia, I've been looking at the incredible color time-lapse photography of most of these tests supervised by my now-departed friend, um, uh, Charlie Wyckoff at EG&G. He's the one that built the cameras, the one that created the film. Charlie Wyckoff, my friend at EG&G, was the guy who was in charge of the AEC documentation of all of the tests of the Atomic Energy Commission in building the bomb after World War II. If you look at those films, in particular, the incredible million frame per second cameras that Charlie built and the film that came out of that without destroying the celluloid and the, and the uh, um, you know, silver, incredible design for cameras with spinning mirrors at a million frames per second. If you look at the time-lapse of the various geometries and the appearance of the mushroom clouds, you will see superimposed, roiling, moving, three-dimensional faces over and over and over and over again in hundreds of nuclear weapons tests that I have now had a chance to briefly, just briefly, sample. And I got to go back and look. But that's an example on a very short time frame, John, of what I'm proposing, which is depending upon <clears throat> the width of the gate, depending upon the matching of resonance between our 3D world and the higher dimensions of which now we know, at least I know, consciousness resides and persists and tries to interact between the dimensions when a nuclear weapon is exploded, a whole bevy of consciousness comes through and tries to make its presence known, if even only ephemerally and briefly, in the fading light of a mushroom cloud. Richard, I will send you a picture tonight after the show, because we don't have time tonight, but uh, I did a composite of, it's a volcano, and it's volcano lightning. So I have a picture of Hera <laughs> next to this plume of smoke and lightning. And call me crazy, but I think there are these faces somehow encoded into it. Well, when you look at the, the ruin, I, the first time I kind of had a glimmer of this was when I was looking at the, the clouds from the collapse of the World Trade Towers back in, in 9-11. Yeah. And you can see some pretty bizarre imagery, which, of course, critics will say, oh, you guys, would you stop smoking that stuff? <laughs> but if you look at the physics behind it, you have plasmas, you have disassociated electrons, protons, atomic nuclei. You've got a gate between dimensions, as Kozarev measured, and the Russians doing their uh, tokamak experience uh, experiments have measured, and uh, Kozarev, I told, talked about Kozarev, De Palma measured some of this. I believe this is one window on, on what could be occurring, and then you say, well, why would you say that a mountain range would be sculpted by consciousness uh, in, in analog to, you know, the roiling clouds in a nuclear weapons uh, um, a mushroom cloud? The only difference 
if mind over matter is what we're seeing, is the time scale. One takes milliseconds to occur. The other may take a million years. But if you're living in another dimension, our time is irrelevant. It means nothing. In fact, one of the hardest things that I have is trying to figure out what the time scale is between where Robin is and where we are. Because I really have a feeling that there is this disconnection in time scales and some of this communication has to kind of be, you know, preloaded. In other words, because of her position, she knows what's going to happen in three dimensions in our future. And then she can plot how she's going to have interacted with 3D matter so that when my stupid brain wakes up and sees a pattern, it's already got the right pattern to look at and to learn from. Exactly. Um, Easy for you to say. (laughs) Yeah, you said... Georgia, am I really on, on, on the trail of something here or... Should I go into a different business, like storm windows? <laughs> well, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me, um, because there's a whole other component uh, to this. You know, one of the, the beefs I have with the program Ancient Aliens, I, I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, um, is they attribute everything to aliens. Yep. But it's more complex than that. Yep. They, the Hindus and the Buddhists talk about a whole nother parallel kingdom with humanity called the kingdom of devas, which on the high scale, uh, the more advanced would be the angelic realm, and on the low scale would be the uh, elemental realm, the little flower fairies and things like that. When you say so high and low, how are you defining high in, and low? In, uh, degrees of consciousness. Oh, okay. Degree, degrees of being aware. Uh, because some of the little nature spirits aren't self-conscious yet. They're just conscious as their function. So um, a, a lot of the faces that you guys are describing with, you know, volcanic stuff. I mean, we think of the goddess Pele, don't we? Uh, yeah. And, and um uh, you know, with with nuclear blasts and even in in fire, if you you know take pictures of fire, you'll often see faces. Fire but is this a plasma. Can be um, re- relegated to the Deva Kingdom. It doesn't have to be consciousness in between incarnations. It could be, but that's not the only possibility. The other thing that I wanted to mention is well, hang on, hang on, because my model is. There's this whole vast population of consciousness, a lot of which is desperately wanting to incarnate in 3D because, as Gene Roddenberry said to me, this is the e-ticket, using a a Disney reference. But what if you have a lot of consciousness which cannot find a body but wants to express itself in 3D when these flashes, literally, of dimensional portals or connection or frequency bonding or resonance matching or whatever the physics is when it briefly allows a whole bunch of people to stampede through and leave an imprint that's what they're doing it's like it's like Kilroy was here you know uh there's an old saying as above so below the pattern that yes. works for the large is the pattern that works for the small and within the human body 
the energy centers of the human body called chakras uh, have a natural sort of etheric webbing around them that protects them from impact until they are strong enough uh, to absorb the impact of their lower counterpart. And so for the average individual, as they grow and develop, this webbing is naturally worn away. In premature kundalini uh, experiences, that webbing is burned away prematurely and it allows lower stuff access to higher stuff uh, before the higher stuff is strong enough. One of the things in the esoteric community that's talked about in relationship to nuclear testing is that it's ripping the veil between this dimension, this 3D dimension, and the next one up. And that should be worn away naturally. We're at a time for that to be worn away naturally. But we're also pushing it a little bit here and there. And uh, this is why we're interesting to a lot of folks that are worried about the timing of this. Richard, you took a picture of the volcano uh, just, was it last year? I'm drawing a blank on the volcano now. But uh, we, we've had a few, yes. Yeah, and you you show that there's this cube in the the smokestack. Oh, that's uh, that's the one in the Solomon Islands, uh, uh, Tonga. Tonga, yes. Yeah, yeah, but Tonga is not a nat- is not a volcano. It was an artificial weapon. It was a demonstration of overwhelming hyperdimensional physics, weaponry, military prowess, etc. By somebody, and I don't know who did it, but I know it wasn't natural. For a whole bunch of reasons, uh, we won't have time, obviously, to go through them. But just look up past shows. See, that's the advantage of being a member of Club 19.5. You can go back to these individual shows, and you can listen to the three hours. It costs you pennies. And then you can look at the photographs and study them. Because for all you people who are looking at, at Jonathan's items and going, this guy is loopy, you need time. The better you get at this comes with time. You just have to be persistent and you have to let your so-called boundaries, what you think reality might be guided by, just throw that out the window. We live in a designer solar system. Isn't that you know, bad enough to start with or good enough? After every system we've looked at, and there's been tens of thousands now, this place we live in is unique. And it's unique after a singular event. I think this huge, overwhelming war that we went through, and we're basically, as that old Catherine Hepburn film, uh, she did one one year called Love Among the Ruins. We are trying to carry out love amid the ruins of a catastrophic thing that was done to this nursery. There's an awful lot of people kind of hanging around right now as this physics peaks I think, again, this is speculation, to see if we're going to make it this time, if we're going to bridge this consciousness gap so that we begin to think the unimaginable, the unthinkable, the incredible that we used to be, that we used to have ready access to, and for some reason now, except in specific occasions and in limited circumstance, most people don't even imagine that this other dimension is able to reach in to this dimension and affect meaningful change and lasting 
imprints, and maybe all this is heading toward, you know, re, re-energizing us, you know, creating a format where we reassert our own dominion and power over ourselves and are able then to graduate to the next level. And I feel very, very uh, humble when I say that, given that uh, George is listening. <laughs> I would agree with that. I mean, the, the planet itself is applying for initiation, and that includes all life on the planet, not just humanity. Yeah, I cannot, I, I just won't forsake these people either, Richard. So I know as long as humans do not even recognize what they're looking at, we're not going to be part of the galactic community anytime soon and, until we get past that point. Well, are they trying to help? Yes, they are. I'm one example of them speaking through somebody to try to get something, like you said, it's it's trying to get something going here, re-energize. Well, given that we passed this incredible political, you know, night and day, a BC and AD, I don't think it's going to be a lot longer. I mean, I'm seeing what we, what we say in physics is an asymptotic curve. What's an asymptotic curve having nothing to do with your posterior? It's a line that starts in the bottom left of a graph where you have two right angles meeting or one right angle meeting, and then it goes up and begins to slope upward. And by the time it gets to the other side of the graph, it's going straight up. So an incredible amount of of stuff is going to happen in a very brief period of time. This is not linear. And tomorrow night we're going to talk about this increasing competition between the ufo phenomenon which is really going crazy and the stuff that stands still from my perspective which is the ruins the geometry and yes the art so let me let me let me venture a a model here for how we're going to in 3d without much bigger consciousness get in contact with a higher set of realities that will give us room to play it'll give us scope for our imagination for our creativity and to be able to see things that at the moment we don't recognize what is the biggest hottest newest thing in the scientific spectrum that everybody these days is talking about everybody don't be shy ufos no but you're close ai artificial intelligence The mainstream media, politicians, corporations, Musk, um, um, Stephen, uh, what's his name, Uh, Hawking, they've all turned AI, even as the potential, into modern 21st century gods. They're discussing the upside and the downside, the existential threat, the obsolescence of human beings when a computer can do everything we can and then some, but ultimately all AI comes down to programming by a human and pattern matching. They literally talk about teaching AI algorithms how to see things, right? And tomorrow night I'm going to have two stunning examples of AI doing this as part of our our Mars and Moon discussion, as seems to be happening. We are deifying this artificial intelligence creation that we're birthing 
in our midst. It can have two very different outcomes. One is we wind up worshiping the machines like God, like in the Forbin Project, which I should probably play a bit of tomorrow night. And the other is it becomes the salvation of all the problems confronting humankind that humans have been viewed as too unreliable and too frail and too um, uh, fallible to deal with. I mean, I can see this trend curve crystal clear, and it seems to be moving because someone is pushing, pushing, pushing. Well, what's going to happen in, in our area is that at some point, NASA, which has terabytes of calibrated data of ruins all over the solar system, is going to either arrive at the idea itself putting its own imagery through a sufficiently advanced AI program that's been taught how to see ruins, and then suddenly it will be AI under NASA purview, I've said this before, that will announce that it has found ancient architectural ruins on other planets and moons in the solar system. And guess what? That is NASA's political escape hatch because they will be able to say with a semi-straight face, well, this is just too complicated for humans, but once we brought in this brand new wizard called AI, we solved the problem and look at what we found. And 99% of people will buy it. They will buy it. Other thing that I find really interesting is you can do the same thing with an AI program that recognizes artwork. Georgie, you see where I'm going? Yeah. Which means if an AI says on NBC or CNN or Fox, look at all this artwork on the moon, it will be believed because we're creating the paradigm of our own artificial intelligence gods, and that's a hair's breadth away from the Forbin Project where humanity gave over its destiny to an artificial intelligence that treated it like trained mice. The thing about that, Richard, well, I agree 100%, but um, wow. the, the AI of the gods, let's call it, is so vastly different from our AI. They create, they engineer these planets and stuff to contain a very large consciousness. So all these lights that are, um, this matrix of light around the earth and the moon and Mars traveling through all these apertures and arches, it's somehow creating a engineered consciousness vessel kind of like our body but it's a it's a planet and we you and i talked before about mars being this a smart planet and it's the same with all of them they're they creating it so well, it's well got in all, this... all due recognition it was gary legere that first introduced me to the idea that significant surface portions of mars could be ancient eroded art and i think gary is 100 percent accurate in that incredible genius leap of imagination back when we had no data almost yeah georgia we got a few minutes left 
Well, I think that uh, I'm, I'm with you, Richard. I think we're living in an extraordinary time, and things are going to move a lot quicker than we think they are. Which is up to us, then, who are trying to keep one foot anchored in the ground, to ground people so they have a, a, a place to stand. Remember the old Archimedes cliche, give me a place to stand and I can move the earth with the lever? Right. We yep. need to give them a place to stand so as we move through these extraordinary to most people paradigms of unimaginable extraordinary fantasy that, that they don't lose their grounding. Because it's so easy for people. I've seen it happen even with something as, as mundane now as the face on Mars. I watched people actually go crazy as they began to get into the rabbit hole and go deeper and deeper and deeper into what does it mean for humans and what does it mean for me? And that's where the esoteric side can come in because a lot of this stuff is known within the esoteric circles in a different language and it can now back up science. It's sort of like, you know, dancing wooly masters and, and some of those books that combined Eastern wisdom with Western uh, physics time for that kind of round table and everybody sharing tools. Okay. So I want to guest tonight to, to join us tomorrow night. Uh, there won't be a lot of time, but if, if you can join us, if you can't, very we'll, quiet. we'll be doing a oh, lot yeah. more. Are you there, Richard? I'm here. Hello. He just typed muted. But oh. I didn't mute myself. Well, well, Jonathan, what shall we do? We oh. have a few minutes left, Georgia. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Is there Hello. Another point you want to make before we wrap Hello. things up? Hello. No. Hello. Can you hear me? Can you hear me?